February 1978, and the season of Doctor Who is coming to a close. As a media-savvy 12-year-old, Ben knows enough about his favourite TV show to finally crack the code. Each season of Doctor Who always concludes with a six-part tale, but that six-parter is always made up of two parts and then another four parts. Or is it the other way around? When would the other shoe drop? This is a flashback Metabulous 2 podcast on the invasion of time. Yeah, and then a six-parter made of two and four. Yeah, like um, like the Seeds of Doom, which mm-hmm. is a perfect two and four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite sure Towns of Wang Chiang, but I'm sure you can slice it up some way. I think Towns is four and two. Yeah, it is. It is a four and two. And then, and then yeah, it's, it's perfect. And I, I always got upset when they started to mess with that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, welcome, everybody, to podcast number 61, produced and... <laughs> <laughs> done by the Metabilis 2. And the Metabilis 2 are me, Ben. And David. That's me too. <laughs> uh, exactly, me too. And this week, uh, we are concluding our um, our short run of Leela, Leela Tales. Yes. With what is, spoiler alert, sadly, her final episode in the classic series, um, mm-hmm. The Invasion of Time. Yep, the end of season 15. The very, very end of season 15. Um, and this is, a, I think, this is quite a quite a divisive. Um, people have different views on the invasion of time. David, yeah. what are what are what are your views on the invasion of time? I've never been able to get into that story, <laughs> to be honest. With you. <laughs> I've been trying to think back to my memories as a twelve-year-old when I first saw this, and yeah. I either missed it or I just blocked it out of my mind. I really? don't really remember much of my initial reactions to the invasion of time at all. Hmm. That is interesting because I can remember pretty clearly that I did not like it one Mm. bit. And I think there were two reasons, one of which I think is a direct reason. And then the another reason has kind of crept up on me over the years. And I've sort of realized what that reason is. The first reason is, is I really didn't like the doctor seeming to be evil. Ah, Made for a really good cliffhanger at what the end of episode two well, when he just starts laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but the thing is, and I think uh, this it still kind of irks me now. Actually, is like either the Doctor really has turned evil, mm-hmm. which is like horrible and right. unthinkable mm-hmm. and really deeply unpleasant, and I don't really want to know about it. Or he's pretending to be evil, which kind of makes him a jerk, um, <laughs> and he's being jerky to all his friends, like mm-hmm. Leela, who I loved and still do. And so, Barusa. <laughs> and Barusa, who is who even though he's played by a different actor, is still pretty cool. He hasn't right. become the uncool Barusa that he would become in subsequent regenerations. So I think which, whichever way you cut it, it's like, ugh, 
the doctor is like not being the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, he's either being evil or he's being a horrible person. Um, right. And those are neither two particularly doctory things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Tom Baker's having a fun time mm-hmm. being slightly different from how he how he normally is. But it's the doctor. He doesn't change. And I didn't like that at the time. And I really don't like that now. Yeah. The other thing that I, I think I was, I was this kind of a psychological underpinning of my dislike of this uh, particular uh, a story, uh, which I didn't really, re- I didn't realize at the time, but I, I think I certainly realize now, is 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 what I have decided to call the Davros syndrome, hmm. which is like our friend Davros, who was introduced in one of the most perfect and self-contained uh, Doctor Who tales ever, the Genesis of the Daleks, yep. and then was brought back unnecessarily over and over and over again mm-hmm. in a kind of mm-hmm. fan service way, which actually made him more of a popular character than he ever was, mm-hmm. but also kind of ruined the character because it was just so perfect in and one it episode. Undermined the Daleks completely. Undermine the Daleks completely. I really feel that the invasion of time is doing that for the Time Lords. Um, mm. The Deadly Assassin was an absolutely perfect to me, um, it hit me at right at exactly the right time, the, the the right age, and I think it's a it's a fantastic story. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. We should have left the Time Lords there. I don't I I don't ever really want to see the Time Lords again. I'm not really interested in exploring Gallifrey mm-hmm. and all its uh, mysterious yeah. origins, sash of key of Rassilon. And the more that we see of Gallifrey, like the more that we see of Davros, the more the concept becomes popular to a certain kind of fan. And the more <laughs> I actually I actually dislike it. Right. Um, and I think that, that that's that's what was happening here to me. I did not want to see more of Gallifrey. I didn't mm-hmm. find it interesting. Um, the you know the more we learn about you know Rassilon and stuff, like the less interesting it becomes. Right. But conversely, the more compelling it becomes to a particular kind of fan. Which is a particular kind of fan that I don't I don't really care for, which is the fan who wants to know more about a thing. So do you think this maybe is kind of parallel to the fans who came to know Gallifrey through, say, the war games or uh, some of the Pertwee stories where Gallifrey is still very powerful and mysterious and very aloof? And then maybe was your first introduction to Gallifrey in the Deadly Assassin? Yeah, that I mean, apart from apart from the books, of course, um, right. the first time I'd ever experienced Gallifrey was well, I guess, I mean, I have a very very young memory of, and I think actually, uh, episodic, the first episodic um, Doctor Who that I watched from episode one all the way to episode four was uh, uh, was the Three Doctors. Right. Okay. Which of course starts out on Gallifrey, but mm-hmm. you know, as I said, that was that was so so kind of early in my Doctor Who consuming right. life um, that I barely even registered. But no, my 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 first real encounter of Gallifrey was um, was uh, was the Deadly Assassin. And mm-hmm. I loved it, and I think I think you know this more kind of brightly lit version of Gallifrey um, and with, plastic furniture with plastic it's, furniture it's low rent Gallifrey yeah and really kind of stupid trip hazard corridors <laughs> with those kind of you know those diagonal things I mean why no one's no wonder people I don't know like those are really stupid corridors um, well, I, it they wouldn't pass like health and safety in anyone's planet <laughs> well it looked to me like Gallifrey in many places was set dressing for that uh, mental hospital, the, the, the derelict or disused mental hospital that that they use for the TARDIS interior scenes. Which is a great concept. Having to use a derelict mental hospital as the interior of the TARDIS because you had run out of money 
was kind of the wrong way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Using a derelict mental hospital as the interior of the TARDIS, because that's a great way to do the interior of the TARDIS. That's right. how they should have addressed it. But they kind of did it as like, oh, shit, we've got no money. We're going to mm-hmm. have to do this. I hope no one notices. They, right. should have made a, you know, they should have made more of it, in my opinion. Well, I think it looks a lot better than whatever they've done with, say, in Castor Valvo with the endless roundel corridors or in Journey to the Center of the TARDIS beyond the scene where they had the power cords dangling down. With the budget and the location filming that they had for the new series, they could have filmed in a real library or they, they could have filmed in a swimming pool. They could, have, right. they could have done the things that they did in The Invasion of Time, but instead they take the cheap way of filming against a green screen. Yeah. I think we've mentioned this before. I think if they went into the catacombs of like St. Paul's Cathedral in London, that would be the type of look that I would be looking for or a more eclectic look where you have the disused mental hospital, but then you'd also have rooms of grandeur interspersed with it. Yeah, this is is really the best ever TARDIS interior, in my my opinion. And the the TARDIS interiors, apart from perhaps some incarnations of the the main control room in the new series, has Mm -hmm. been desperately disappointing. It's just been like a standard standard spaceship corridor. Mm -hmm. And the, the corridors that they produce in this mental hospital are, you know, are interesting corridors. And the, mm-hmm. the, the TARDIS is a fantastically interesting device mm-hmm. um, and, you know, will have a really interesting and unusual interior, which can be absolutely anything. So, right. yeah, you know, a mixture of the interior of St. Paul's Cathedral and, you know, a mental hospital would would be amazing. And they should go back to that. Or, you know, the British Museum or the British Library. British, Museum, or just, British Library or, or whatever, yeah. You know, just or archive or just something. It can be anything. And like we see with the secondary control room in the early Tom Baker era, it doesn't have to always look the same. You can have nope. different looks and different feels. And I think what happens like in The Doctor's Wife where you have the hexagonal corridors and they're steely gray, it just becomes very mundane and yep. just monotonous and uninspired. Yeah, yeah. Which is exactly, you know, what they do with the Citadel of Gallifrey mm-hmm. in Invasion of Time as well. It just looks like it looks like a set. Mm-hmm. And what was great about Deadly Assassin, you know, it was it was dark and grim and and enclosed looking. Right. Um, and just these kind of bright, open, it's definitely a set interiors. It just, uh, they just don't really work mm-hmm. that well. And, you know, and don't even get me started on the kind of, I don't know, the kind of random, random, it's some savages that Leela hooks up with when mm-hmm. the Shobaguns, whatever they're called. Shabugans? I mean, well, we don't, we don't know. I mean, that's what they're called, or the vandals who uh, put graffiti in the Panopticon in the Deadly Assassin are called. But then they're called right. the Outsiders in the invasion of time so the shabugans may or may not be the same group (laughs) i think that's left for uh, interpretation and uh, some some bit of fandom says of course there's shabugans because it's it's a cool sounding name and why not use it but then they didn't use it in the invasion of time. That's true. I, w- I want to do a quick setting of the scene here. Uh, this was an emergency script again, just like <laughs> season 14, we had the talents of Wang Chiang. Bob Holmes does an amazing job with, for, with an emergency script. Here we have Anthony Reed and Graham Williams not doing an amazing job with an emergency script. <laughs> uh, 
um, Anthony Reed had uh, commissioned a known, uh, well-respected television writer, David Weir, to write the six-part conclusion for season 15. And he came up with a script that was commissioned um, called Killers of the Dark or something along those lines. And it featured the other populace of, or other species on Gallifrey or the other race on Gallifrey, which were sentient anthropomorphic cats, as I understand it, sort of uh, shades of survival or new yeah. earth. Yeah. And um, it was beyond the budget of realization for Doctor Who. And so the director, Gerald Blake, ultimately oh, said... I, I, and the, I, think, I, think, I think one would just interject that it was obviously from the very beginning beyond beyond the budget of Doctor Who. Right. I mean, you're not going to have an arena full of uh, gladiator cats on a Doctor Who budget in 1978. So the question is, like, why why it even got beyond synopsis. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Who knows? Beyond the pitch, right, yeah. Exactly. So uh, Gerald Blake, the director, um, he had one other Doctor Who under his belt. He did The Abominable Snowman, said, uh, this isn't going to fly. And so at a very late hour... Anthony Reed pulled the plug on it, and they could find no one else. So he and Graham Williams decided what could they do on the cheap. And so they had the Gallifreyan guards and Time Lord costumes in the warehouse. They had the Citadel set, and so they set it around Gallifrey. It, it, yeah. It's a real hodgepodge. And then you have Graham Williams denial that his leading lady is leaving the show at the end and so you have this mess and it doesn't fit well together i think the addition of the outsiders adds a little bit to gallifrey a little bit yeah. i think it gets a little stodgy with everything being in a panopticon it's sort of like yeah. in the star trek thing where you beam down to the city and that's representative of the entire planet it's not the key of marinus approach where right you right. have different different cultures and environments in a city so adding the outsiders or the counterculture to gallifrey adds a dimension to it but they aren't very convincing savages put it that way yeah. um the tribe of the seven team is much a more lot convincing. <laughs> a lot better. Let me, I, I'll just interject. I really like what you said just then about Graham Williams or, you know, the writers of this being in denial about, about Louise Jameson mm-hmm. leaving. Um, that's, that's a really accurate way to describe it um, because there is no preparation right. done anywhere through the first... Um, uh, six, you know, right, <laughs> right through the very end. <laughs> right to the there's there's nothing mm-hmm. that's done to prepare the audience mm-hmm. for her leaving. Which again, I think is I think you're absolutely right. I think they were hoping that she wouldn't, mm-hmm. um, and then oh, actually she is going to. Um, mm-hmm. It's a complete exercise in like oh shit, um, our leading actress is going to leave, and we've nothing we can do about it. And I think the weak script with just. There's not a lot of material for Jamison to work with beyond when she's out with the outsiders outside of Gallifrey. Uh, it let Tom Baker run out of control. It's the it's the inmates running the asylum at this point because yep. he yep. is getting away with things that he wouldn't have gotten away with under uh, just a previous season with all the directly acting in front of the camera all the direct asides to the audience breaking the yeah. fourth wall even the sonic screwdriver couldn't get him out of this one. Oh, it's funny i mean as a as i'm sure as a young person maybe eight nine seven eight nine that would be really good but as a 
as a teen, uh, that, that kind of grates. And as an adult, it's like, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you should have edited that out or done another exactly. take or something. Exactly. And I think, though, I mean, just quickly going back to Louise Jameson quickly, I mean, she's still acting her ass off all the way through in the background. I mean, she's got nothing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the one relationship that she does have, which is with Rodan, who mm-hmm. I always like want her to turn into a giant kind of Japanese reptile of some kind of name <laughs> like Rodan. Um, you know, even that's completely undeveloped. But, I mean, she, again, Louise Jameson is just amazing. Mm-hmm. She's always acting. She's always being her character. Even when she's got bug all to do, mm-hmm. um, she's, she's, she's still trying. It's great. Yeah, just a little bit that they gave her at the beginning where the doctor tells her to tell K-9 to order her to be quiet is both patronizing and then, but Jameson's portrayal of Leela is sort of like, how dare you? And she's such a great actress and she gives, she cares so much and she gives so much for Leela. When yep. you look at in the Barry Letts years with how Joe Grant was written out of the program, it it's such a crime that an actor of Louise Jamison's caliber is not given a central story or a, a central role or even just anything yep. in her final story that makes her character shine. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And the whole thing, I, I, here's, here's a question that I'm just going to put out here that's just kind of random. Um, so our villains are the Vardens, mm-hmm. um, who, it, in my opinion, actually are a lot better as shimmering aluminium foil <laughs> um, than the whatever the yes. hell they are when they actually become real and why they become real, who knows? Mm-hmm. And they're just kind of like, I don't know, they're dressed in uniforms. Um <laughs> one of the questions that kind of leapt into my head when I was watching this or, or, or re-watching this is like, if you're trying to save money, mm-hmm. um, are really, really bad actors cheaper than good actors? <laughs> so so was, was one of the tactics trying to save money on this show just hire people who couldn't act because they're cheaper? I mean, Stan McGowan, the Scottish Varden, I'm a better actor than that. Really? I mean, good Lord. I mean, I mean, I can only imagine that if you're no good at acting, like you're really, really cheap to hire or something, which is why, which is why Stan got that job because he's awful. Och, I, the new, I'm a Scottish Varden. Yeah. You think that's on his uh, equity card? I, <laughs> the, I don't know. the Scottish Varden. <laughs> the Scottish Varden. I'm, I'm actually a quite a big fan of, um, is it Paul Cornell's uh, novel where the Vardens come back? I don't no know. future. Paul Cornell. Um, which is one of the Virgin New Adventures. Okay. And uh, spoiler alert, it's obviously, it's, you know, it's complete mm-hmm. uh, Virgin New Adventure fan wank. <laughs> but um, the villains in Paul Cornell's no, no, no Future are the Vardens. And it's <laughs> awesome because actually they're really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of expands, you know, what they can do and they can move the... They have this ability to kind of live in the media sphere and they can uh-huh. travel down people's kind of, you know, they can travel down television. And it's it's a really excellent reimagining the Vardens. And he makes the Vardens actually really kind of compelling villains. Mm-hmm. Um, here, they're just, act- they're just rubbish. Right. I mean, they really are rubbish, rubbish villains. They're, they're not well acted. Mm-hmm. They, they don't really seem to have any motivation. We're not really explained what they're trying to do, why they're trying to do it and why the doctor is helping them. Mm-hmm. 
I think this is, might be a meta commentary on the monsters. This this whole season beyond the Rutan, have we really had any monsters? Mm, not well. The, the the Fendal's kind of a monster. Okay, okay. So the the Fendal and the Fendal Fendalkin are monsters. Yeah, but okay. I think the crap monster is there on purpose. Oh really? I, I'm thinking that that is part of the joke or the meta commentary uh, on okay. this season right. because i mean even even the beginning of this uh the story in part one this is the second time in a row the third time in the season where we have the spaceship going through outer space with the dudley simpson opening overture music we just had that in right. underworld we had that invisible enemy and it seems to me like anthony reed is the type of writer that likes doing meta commentary on this show that he's supposed to be working on right. and it seems to me that this is a lot of meta commentary on doctor who crap monsters crap plots and crap acting maybe i don't know but there doesn't seem to be a lot of love for the program in this. This seems like we got to crank something out for the kiddos. Yeah. And we're really sophisticated adults, and we're going to be laughing at what we can do. Yeah. I, I don't. Maybe that's it. But the whole story rubs me the wrong way a lot of time, a lot. It's not. There's not a lot for me as a Doctor Who fan to love with this one. No, and it, and I think as we as we pointed out, you know, our junior selves mm-hmm. who were kids ish, mm-hmm. teenage kids, and also Doctor Who fans, there wasn't a lot for for, for us either, right. really. You know, um, I re- remember all the way through this uh, show, uh, through this through the first four episodes, I was kind of waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. And being irritated that the doctor was being a dick to all his friends. Those were all my two main emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I watch it, is like I'm just kind of. When is something going to happen? Um, there is nothing happening here. This is all. Mm-hmm. And the doctor has no motivation. The villains have no motivation. Right. Um, everyone's kind of standing around. Um, it's 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 painful, mm-hmm. really. It kind of is painful. The scene, that scene where Andred is trying to have Leela choose out clothes, that is that is probably the most painful scene to watch in the serial. Yeah. I have a I have my note is sort of like, ooh, this is this is painfully bad to watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, I mean they I mean, I think we're just probably just gonna go on about this for a bit. But you know, they introduce a tribe of savages mm-hmm. and you know, at the end of the last episode, Leela cops off with like the kind of straight edgiest policeman mm-hmm. um, when she's got a whole tribe of. I mean, you know, she should have gone off into the wilderness to like run the savages or something. I don't well, know. Well, perhaps, but for the little arc that they have, does that defeat Leela's arc because she started out being in a in a tribe and she returns to a tribe? Does that defeat the educating Leela? But they weren't really paying any attention to it. The, this whole they this whole season beyond um, outside of horror, Fang Rock, Image of Fendal, and Sunmakers, all the other stories basically are saying Leela is stupid because she's uneducated. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And those are the ones I feel that Anthony Reed had more influence over than the holdovers from the Holmes era. Yeah, yeah. And she ends up again, as I said, you know, being just being the policeman's wife. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot more chemistry, and I know this is 1978, but there's a lot more chemistry between Leela and Rodan. Oh, that would have been good. Than yes. there is between Leela and... And... Uh, Andred. Andred, yeah. 
Yeah, whatever the hell his name is. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, that's so not going to happen mm-hmm. in 1978 kids TV, but, but still. But there's yeah. actual, but there's still some chemistry there. You know, she's very supportive of Rodan. She's taking Rodan's hand. They're running off yeah. into the wilderness together. Yeah. If if you're looking for chemistry, there's a lot more chemistry there than the few scenes that she has with Andred. Yeah. It doesn't work for me. I mean, you, why did you have to marry Leela off? And, I mean, she could have decided that, you know, I gave up my tribe of the 17 to go with you, but now I'm going to take your tribe of outcast, Doctor, of the Gallifreyans, and be a part of them. That would have made as much sense. She spent more time with them. You know, maybe she was homesick. I don't know. It just it just would have worked better than the crap ending that she got. I mean, at, at least she got to keep K-9, which at least there was some kind of chemistry between or affection, I think, between Leela and K-9. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, let's 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 try and pull out some good things from these first four, 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 four episodes. Okay. Um, Rodan is Rodan is excellent. Um, Hillary Ryan. Uh, Hillary Ryan. She's a great character. Mm-hmm. I would like to have seen her come back well, a lot more than she did. I mean, the character of Rodan is the proto Romana. Proto Romana. Yeah. You see her technological savvy of being able to uh, with Romana being able to put the. Uh, the tracer into yep. the TARDIS console in the Rebos operation, but we see that, that technical savvy of Rodan being able to talk shop or talk techno babble with the Doctor. That yep. I thought that worked well, and we're seeing this character Rodan seems like a trial character for Romana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and again, you know, I think if the if the production team had had their shit together better, you know. Uh, that would have been Romana right. or Rodan would have joined the TARDIS right. team, etc. You know, if they'd mm-hmm. really been thinking about what... what, what, what if they weren't in denial. <laughs> if they weren't in denial, exactly. Um, I'm delighted to have Milton Johns oh, back yes. again, even, even though his character has relatively little motivation for any of his actions. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just such a fun actor to spend time with and he's just a lot of fun to watch. He's just always, he's such a sleazebag all the time. <laughs> and he's the ultimate sleazebag mm-hmm. um, as the, as, as, as the Castellan. Um, Kellner. And, and I can remember, I mean, in some ways, I, as a kid, I was disappointed because I remember the original Castellan Kellner from... Um, uh, from Deadly Assassin, and obviously, you know, this new incarnation of Castellan Kellner is a is a sleaze bag. Were um, they the same character, or were they just ca- same role? I think they're just Castellan. I don't. I don't oh, think was, it was. Was it was it, was, was it not Castellan Kellner? And oh, okay. All right. My memory was that it was Castellan Spandrel. Castellan Spandrel. Isn't George it? Pravda. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Then I think what I'm remembering is 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 I think I at the time I was confusing the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, because I loved Castellan Spandrel, right. and I was, and I think I can remember at the time at my young age going like, ah, I really liked the Castellan originally, mm-hmm. and now he's turned into someone who's horrible. Right. Um, I've kind of got over that now because Milton Johns is just so much fun mm-hmm. um, to watch. Of his three roles in Doctor Who, uh, Benick from Enemy of the World, um, Guy Crayford from Android Invasion, and uh, Castellan Kellner in The Invasion of Time. Do you have a preference of his performances? Um, because I've now had a chance to watch Enemy of the World, and mm-hmm. Enemy of the World is amazing, yes. um, it's got to be Benick in, mm-hmm. um, in Enemy of the World. He's okay as... Um, 
astronaut guy in, Crayford <laughs> as astronaut guy Crayford he's not quite heroic enough mm-hmm. um you know I I mean I I get the impression that originally that was going to be more of a kind of a Dan Dare kind of character he just um, doesn't strike me as astronaut material in the whole he's not story really, he's he's sleazy evil evil material he's not he's not really he's not really heroic mm-hmm. heroic astronaut material but he's a lot of fun to have around so yeah. that's good um I also I mean John Arnott as Chancellor Barusa did oh, a very good amazing. job he's a He's he's pretty much one of the best Barusas out there. Well, there's I think there's only two good Barusas. We have uh, Angus McKay, who is the first incarnation of Barusa that we had in Deadly Ass Assassin, yep. and then uh, John Arnett. Uh, just he reigns in Tom Baker's excesses in the scenes that they share. Brilliantly, so exactly. He's yeah. He's like he's like the graphite rod that kind of you know <laughs> tamps down the uncontrollable and irritating nuclear reaction that is tom baker unchained exactly yeah because i was paying really close attention to his face this time when he was acting opposite baker and what he can do with just kind of a a raised cheek or a purse of the lips or a squint he doesn't have to have a lot of words it's sort of like louise jemison's off-camera action acting yeah arnett has that with his face and his control there i think he is wasted in most of the story because they shove him off in his under house arrest in his office and he doesn't have doesn't have much of a role beyond you know the first two episodes and then at the very end yeah 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 no and he's and he's he's fantastic i mean he's he's i think angus mckay's it will always be the greatest barusa <laughs> for me um but he's certainly like the second best right. amazing barusa the other two barusas would crap in my opinion yeah but it wasn't until terrence dix decides to well well yeah yeah Yeah. anyway poor barusa too many barusas (laughs) um barusas so uh gold usher was good charles morgan uh yes with the crowning yes or the the ceremony that was uh, and that was a pretty good ceremony um you know it's like uh, it reminded me a lot of the opening of parliament well, I think it was deliberately because, of, of course, okay. you know, um, at the opening of Parliament, you have Black Rod um, mm-hmm. and you have various ushers and things. I mean, it was deliberately modeled on, right. on, on the state opening of Parliament, um, which, of course, you know, uh, I don't know, English people are vaguely familiar with. We're probably not as familiar, <laughs> familiar with it as people think we are, um, mm-hmm. i.e. Americans think we are, but we're a little bit familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and it was it was yeah, it, it was okay. I mean, you know, obviously the things of Rassilon start to get a bit <laughs> irritating after a while, especially when they're draped over K9, um, who isn't really built mm-hmm. to have Rassilon-y things draped over him. Um, oh, it was just it was pathetic. It's sort of like at least make a make it a, if you need to make it a different size so it fits over K9's head. Make it a different size to fit over K9's head because just having it hang off him. It looked like his neck was going to snap or his head was going to snap off at any moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, yeah, yeah. And the TARDIS, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... uh, Everything looked really tatty. Um, mm-hmm. he, um, which is why well, actually... the plastic pillows that they used oh at the ceremony, God, and the, the yeah. stuffy plastic chairs. It just, yeah, it, 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 every, every time we see Gallifrey, it just looks a little more yucky. Yeah. I mean, you know, it looks, it, you know, it, it looks like more and more like a rundown Amsterdam brothel, basically. <laughs> uh, it's just kind of tacky furniture mm-hmm. in like the wrong color. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, it just gets worse and worse, Gallifrey. And ironically, you know, if they'd if they'd actually really scouted out that old hospital they use for the for the TARDIS interiors, I'm sure they would have been able to find like a big room that would have done for like bits of Gallifrey, but it's just so studio-bound. Well, they could have done more location footage. or yeah. Again, I'm wondering if Rundown Gallifrey is kind of the uh, a meta-commentary. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, that and that, the corridor with those diagonal green buttress things sticking out. It's just, anyway, yeah, whatever. Mm. The sound was horrible because you get whatever fan or ventilation system was going, and at times it's almost hard to hear the dialogue because it's not that you couldn't hear the dialogue, but the actors are kind of shouting their lines to be heard over the ventilation system or over the fans, and it's it's just not a great uh, production, low production value side of the story. I'd like to talk a little bit about the outsiders and the and and, and uh, the presentation of that. So right. we have a veteran <laughs> stuntman getting a speaking role. So we get Max Faulkner, who plays Nesbin as the leader of the outsiders, and much like what we commented on with the uh, tribe of the Seven team, the outsiders. <laughs> don't look very rugged or like they can survive on the outside. Max Faulkner is a veteran of many Doctor Who Pertwee stories and Tom Baker stories. I mean, I think his earliest story was uh, probably Ambassadors of Death, but he also played like a miner in Monster of Peladon Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. guards like in Genesis of Daleks, et cetera, et cetera. But to give him a speaking role, I think it touches on what you were saying earlier of are cheap actors any less expensive than good actors? Yeah. Yeah, because he, I mean, he, he does a lot better than Stan, Stan McGowan does. The Varden. Um, uh, Stan McGowan, the Varden, the Scottish. Oh, hey, the Scottish Varden. Um, <laughs> he doesn't do a very good job, though. He's not very convincing. He just kind of stands around a bit. He does some nice stunting. Um, right. Which is pretty unnecessary, but I guess he does it. Um, but it's he, yeah. They're pretty un, uncompelling as savages. And the whole idea of the outsiders—it seems like it's an unfulfilled element of the story. Right, right. Why right. even introduce them other than to have someone on the outside of the Gallifreyan society? Because if I was writing this, I would expect to have okay. I'm introducing the outsiders because. Time Lord Society, as we see from Castle and Kellner and just the rundownness of the Citadel, is decaying. And the, the energy and the lifeblood of Gallifreyan society is actually outside of this very tired Time Lord culture. So right, having, right, right. having a callback to, say, like the face of evil where you have the split society where you have the id on the outside and the uh, the ego on the inside in in like with the tesh you have the parallel maybe with the gallifreyan society but instead of a hostile meetup at the very end maybe this is exactly what gallifreyan society needed to be a little be a little less stodgy a little less academic a little less bureaucratic and it, it, it's the renaissance or the revitalization of the culture that perhaps Leela instigates or something. I don't know. But it, it, just, it just seems like a waste. And they're not, what are they really there for? 
So, I mean, story writes itself. You, you've actually just <laughs> written a far better story than the, the actual script writers came up with. Right. Um, pretty simply. Um, you know, this, that's, it's a pretty... And again, I can remember at the time right. waiting for that to happen um, mm-hmm. and it not happening. I, and I remember waiting for that to happen because I was against it because I actually kind of <laughs> like stodgy Time Lord Society. And at that time, mm-hmm. I wasn't that keen on savages. Right. Um, but it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Why introduce them... At well, all. They have nothing to do, exactly. And they don't really fit within Leela's story. Nope. I don't think it works within the story. I like that it's part of the Gallifreyan culture or Gallifreyan society. I like that they got outside the Panopticon or out of the Citadel, but it's a wasted opportunity. It's sort of like you, you played out those cards, you had them in your hand, but you weren't able to score with them. Yep. Yeah. And then... Uh, just a bit of trivia. Oh, mm-hmm. the third woman in the cast, the woman who plays Presta, Gay Smith is her right. name. She is an Australian uh, actress, but she uh, went back to Australia and is now uh, known as Gay Waterhouse, the first lady of Australian horse racing. She certainly is. The wow, her Wikipedia entry is huge. Yes, it's certainly a lot bigger than Stan McGowan's. <laughs> But she is... Uh, Blimey, O'Reilly. Uh, Gosh, there she is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, Gay Waterhouse. Uh, and so this is, this is a, a credit to this era, the Williams era. If this was a film probably in the, under the auspices of Hinchcliffe and Holmes, uh, we probably would have gotten a better story, but we probably would have had an entirely male cast. That's so true. So Rodan would have been male... Yep. Uh, and uh, uh, Presta of the Outcast would have been a male as well. Yep, yep. And you know, if you look at you look at a genius story like uh, the Deadly Assassin, there is no, there is nothing, there is no femaleness mm-hmm. of any kind anywhere in that story. Yes, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On yeah. another aspect of this, uh, I, I want to just throw throw this out. Uh, yep. This is something that Tony Haydock wrote in his Running Through Corridors yep. uh, book with Rob Shearman. Mm-hmm. And this is his general assessment of the invasion of time. So he writes, The general feeling I have with this episode is that it's like being the only sober person at a party in which Tom Baker and director Gerald Blake drunkenly think they're hilarious when they're not. But it's possible to find it entertaining anyway, not in the way it was intended, but because you can only watch this aghast at quite how self-indulgent one was allowed to be when making television in 1978. I, that's I think never a true word was spoken by Tony Haddock. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Self-indulgent. And it just I see this as kind of the low point in Tom Baker here in season fifteen. He's had a rocky relationship with Louise Jamison. She's leaving. He doesn't have a director, a producer, or a script editor reining him in. And whether Anthony Reed is the one who writes in lines like when. Uh, like at the very beginning, like when the doctor says, uh, I'm delighted to be back in Gallifrey. And then he turns to the soldier, where are you from, soldier? And the soldier says, Gallifrey. And the doctor goes, never heard of it. And, and those are supposed to be funny scenes, but they're, they're not, not funny. They're not funny. We're not, <laughs> we're not laughing. No it's, one's laughing. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, it's, if you're going to do funny scenes, you need, you need a comic writer. You need, you, what you needed was Douglas Adams. 
mm-hmm. um, who was actually, and again, I, I'm not a huge fan of his work on Doctor Who in general, mm-hmm. but at least he knew how to write a funny scene. This is like, this is kind of undergrad, this is like watching, it's like, it's under, it's like an undergraduate play, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like being at university and like that someone is putting on a Doctor Who play or something. It's a skit. Yeah, it's somebody trying to write jokes yeah. that doesn't have that talent. <laughs> yeah, it's a convention skit, you know, mm-hmm. where all your Doctor Who pals, like, <laughs> get up on stage and, like, send themselves up. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> oh, th- oh there's... A, I just thought... <laughs> oh. there, there, are some, there are some really heartbreaking scenes in there. And I think the scene where Leela tails the doctor back to the TARDIS. Oh yeah. And then she bangs on the bangs on the door and she just cries out, Doctor and then you cut to inside the TARDIS and Canine's head bows and the doctor covers his ears. That's really hard to watch. It is hard to watch. It's an emotional but it just seems out of tune with this story. It's it's hard to watch because you've still got no idea of exactly why the Doctor is doing this. Right. Um, Because it's never explained why he has to protect... Well, like, it's vaguely explained. I mean, the Vardens can read your thoughts, blah, blah, blah. Um, But why he has to lure the Vardens to Gallifrey for some reason, Mm -hmm. it's not explained, which is what makes it so hard to watch. Because it seems like our, our friends, you know, are the characters that we love so much, kind of putting themselves through something that neither of them are enjoying particularly for no readily apparent reason. Yeah, it's a sloppy story, hastily written. And, you know, I gave Bob Holmes a hard time for relying on his stereotypes, his prejudices and his tropes in the towns of Wang Chiang. But what Holmes was able to do was make a pretty cracking story. There's nothing, there's really nothing here other than six, six part story that doesn't develop any character. It kind of has a, has a story. And then we get at the end of part four, the Vardens just kind of get whisked away in a time loop and we don't really have anything there at all. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's pretty disappointing, and probably the the thing that the story is most known for is... Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> like the couple of seconds where the villains appear. Right. So as you alluded to in your introduction, this is a four-part story followed by a two-part story. And the two-part story we see at the very end of part four, the Suntarans. Oh, and it is just, you know, it really, it's, the, it's, it's, if there's one bit that you will, could watch over and over again, it's when the Sontarans appear on the staircase because mm-hmm. nobody knew that that was going to happen. Um, right. In the days before any kind of media would be able to reveal something like that, right. nobody knew that that was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it blew my mind at the time, and it still kind of blows my mind to this day, actually. It's really, really good. It's an amazing cliffhanger, and it's probably the best part story-wise in uh yep. the invasion of yep. time those 10 seconds or so when the when the when the sontarans mm-hmm. are standing on the staircase um little sontaran zappers at the ready with their super cool sontaran mm-hmm. helmets just amazing yeah very very good right 
it was not telegraphed. You would not have expected that at all. And I think, I think as, as in some ways, as we pointed out when we were talking about the horror of Fang Rock and how um, a more polished script might have eliminated the confusion between the similarity of two main characters' names... I think mm-hmm. actually the lack of polish and the kind of the, the hurriedness that this script was written actually plays into that because I think a more polished script would have, you know, attempted to trail the Sontarans better or, you know, imply that they were on their way or, you know, do some way that would basically, because it'd spoil the surprise. Tip their hand. Tip the hand in some kind of way. And I think, uh, you know, and the, the, the fact that actually no one, no one was really paying attention and some mm-hmm. were like, well, why, why don't we just have the Sontarans turn up? Okay, yeah, that right. sounds good. I'll just write them in. The reason, mm-hmm. the, the fact that it was written in that kind of cat-handed way makes it a huge surprise. Um, right. And I think, you know, it's one, it's, it's one instance where the kind of lack of, of attention that anyone was paying to this story really kind of pays off. Right. It works, but then they don't do anything really with it. The, the, <laughs> as we have alluded to, uh, this is two episodes of wandering through a disused mental hospital, which is the TARDIS interior, with not much else going on. I, I think it's in some ways, I mean, I, and again, you know, I remember I was, you know, delighted at the time when the Sontarans turned up because, you know, they're super cool villains. Everyone likes the Sontarans. It kind of made sense to me because, you know, I remember the time monster and, you know, and I think, um, not, time, not sorry, the time monster, the time warrior, the, the, the time warrior. I think a, a lot of people forget that in their initial adventure, the Sontarans are masters of time. They are, they have already mastered time travel. Right. Um, they are a time traveling race. So um, to have them attack Gallifrey actually makes a kind of sense because you know, right. as a time traveling race, at some point in their in their history, um, you know, they develop the ability to travel through time. Of course, they would become interested in the Time Lords, and the Time Lords would become interested in them. Mm-hmm. Though exactly what the hell they're doing invading Gallifrey, it's never explained. Um, and uh, the Doctor then finds some kind of gun, um, which is pretty undoctorish, and then he shoots them, and then it's all over. And that's the story. Oh, and they trip over a chair and get eaten by a plant. <laughs> now, this is the first place in Tom Baker's run where I think he could have had a regeneration. Because the way the DMAT gun is sold by... Barusa, uh-huh. and the whole idea that it's there to po- uh, the key, uh, Rassilon's key, great key, is to power the D or can power the DMAT gun, and that it's too much power, or whatever. Right. That could have triggered a regeneration. Instead, we just see the doctor knocked out by it and forgets everything yep. that happened. But imagine, if you will, that that was Tom Baker's final story. Mm hmm. It probably would have added more gravitas to the story, perhaps. But even that, I don't think, would have salvaged the story to move it up beyond filler. Yeah. Season-ending filler. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, if we look at the Graham Williams finale, so the, we had, this first one's The Evasion of Time. Next season's The Armageddon Factor. Ugh. And then the season 17 would have been Shada, Ugh. but which was... <laughs> <laughs> Which never, sounds. never, never was finished. Yep, good. And so we're left with the horns of Nyman. <laughs> Which I like. I like like the horns of Nyman. But it wasn't meant to be the finale. That's true. That is true. That is true. And so maybe Shada would have been great. And mm. I know there's uh, fans of Douglas Adams, and mm. obviously have a. a a new release coming. Which from... I'm, I'm going to have to buy, obviously, even though I don't really <laughs> want to. Well, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to. You have to buy it. Yeah. Just to support the team. The thing that they hooked me in was they uh, have a Tom Baker shot a scene as is basically Tom Baker as a 80 year old man being the doctor. So, okay. Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll bite. Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. But uh, <laughs> with the Santarans, go ahead. So here's, here's my Santaran question. And this goes back to like our bad act- actors cheaper than good ones. The whole Derek Deadman controversy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As an American person, can you hear how weird his voice is? Or does he just sound like just another English person to you? He just sounds like another English person to me. And the thing that I gravitate on is the overuse of doctor. Doctor. (laughs) Doctor. So for an English person, his Cockney accent is like, hang on. Why is he speaking like that? (laughs) um it's so jarring it's actually kind of cool and after a while you you kind of get into it and i actually Mm -hmm. kind of i kind of like his performance apart from Mm -hmm. the doctor piece which of course (laughs) has been ruined now by you know um mark Mark gatiss and company company. but it is kind of interesting to me that as an american you can't hear how weird that sounds um Mm -hmm. i always find it extraordinary um no sorry that sounds rude i always find it interesting the way that you know english ears are so attuned to accent which is i think in some ways american ears are not attuned to accent but the mm-hmm. fact that he's like you know cool blimey governor it's the sontarans <laughs> it's like well okay i guess i guess they have a south london every 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 planet has a south london. every planet has a south london um and south london is apparently where the commander store comes from um <laughs> i mean and it, but i mean he, he actually does kind of he, he does do a good job it is actually good to have you know a working class sounding alien for a change um even though he does in, in, insist on pronouncing doctor as doctor um uh-huh. And it's kind of cool, but it is it is weird to start off with. And it sounded weird at the time. I think it's less weird now because I think we're more used to having working class characters mm-hmm. not using received pronunciation um, within right. fantasy and science fiction shows. But at mm-hmm. the time, it was like, blimey, what the hell is that? <laughs> Would have been more fitting for the outsiders to have Cockney accents than the Santaran. And the, and our, the, the uh, outsiders are all speaking RP. Yes, exactly. Which actually, in some ways, I, it, to me, and probably makes quite good sense if they're supposed to kind of reject time lords. Oh, yeah, um, course, then yes. you know, they're all super posh, basically, because they're <laughs> lords. Um, and it, right. it, it would have been nice had you know had all the Santarans been like, oh, good, blimey, governors all have a right old jolly knees up, <laughs> knees up, mother brown. You know, just all be like Bob Hoskins style style Cockneys all yes. the way through. It would have been funny if from a Time Warrior on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That would have been fantastic. And Bob Hoskins was a small man. They could have easily got Bob Hoskins to play Sontaran. He'd have made a brilliant Sontaran. Uh, lost opportunity. Uh, lost opportunity. So yeah, I've I, I, I read a lot of hate for, for Derek Dedman and there's actually quite a lot to dislike in his performance. Um, but it's, it's, his accent has really grown on me over the years mm-hmm. and I, I now find it kind of exciting to hear him be a Santaran. It's our first Santaran that really doesn't look like anything like the first two Santarans. Well, it begins the the Santaran rot um, <laughs> that that ends up with the pathetic Santarans um, of the two Doctors mm-hmm. and fans of the amazing um, British comic Viz will understand my reference to the pathetic Santarans. They're a bit like the <laughs> pathetic sharks, pathetic Santarans. There must have been some something fell into the clone vats that yeah, 
Yeah. That, uh... Some jelly eels, some jelly eels and <laughs> pie, pie and liquor <laughs> fell into the clone vats, and out popped some Cockney Sontarans. Yeah, and that that is the risk you play if you are invading Earth. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> jelly eels. Uh... <laughs> uh, so episode five and six is where the techno babble just gets out of control. Yeah. Um, and we have. Uh, <laughs> Radiolactic interference. <laughs> radiolactic. Yeah. What um, is that? I, it's made milk. up. It's technopaddle. It's radioactive milk. I don't know. Milk. Radioactive milk. And Space we, milk. Yeah. Quasitronics and uh, Rodan kept asking for the doctor's Vinkelgruber. Vinkelgruber. Yeah, Vinkelgruber is taking the piss. To be honest, I mean, I can, I can, I can work with quasitronics. They sound good, but a Vinkelgruber is like you're just. You're just making up silly, silly space words here. Yeah, well, I, I just wonder, was this scripted? And is this Tony Reed making fun of the show? Or is is this Tom Baker taking the piss out of well, the show? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the first rule of this kind of show is don't take the piss out of it. Because mm-hmm. that's you gotta, really... You got to trade it seriously. Because that's really easy. Because it's a cheap show. And it's about space people doing space things. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are a few things that are easier to mock than Doctor Who. So... If it starts mocking itself, then we're all just going to go home, basically, because, mm-hmm. well, like, if you don't think it's any good, then I don't think it's any good either. So I'm just going to turn the TV off. Right. If the actors involved can't suspend yeah. disbelief, how are they expecting to the audience? To suspend disbelief, exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is not Red Dwarf. Um, uh, uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Red Dwarf. But, you know, if you're going to do space comedy, that's how you do space comedy. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Final thoughts, I guess, or anything else? Yeah. Want to... Final thoughts. I mean, it's kind of fun to watch it because it's 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 a good hate watch, basically. Um, <laughs> you know, you can hate watch it pretty good. Um, the commentary is pretty good on the DVD. That's kind of enjoyable. You know, it's wonderful to watch Louise Jameson do her stuff. You know, Rodan. That that's a great relationship. Um, mm-hmm. I said the Barusa is it's it's the you know definitely definitely the number two Barusa. With John Arnott, he's a super Barusa. Right. Um, yes. You know, I could replay the Sontarans turning up over and over again. That's just a great moment. And Dudley Simpson's music is is excellent. Yeah. But but anyway, it's but in general, I mean, actually, the Dudley Simpson music is so Dudley Simpsony. It's probably mm-hmm. the most Dudley Simpson that Dudley Simpson has ever been, um, right? In my opinion, um, because I guess again, he's doing it really really quickly. Um, so he's just pulling all his Dudley Simpson things out of the closet. He puts in really interesting little musical cues, like when the doctor has that really big gun and he turns around and he's looking at the Citadel. You kind of get a little gangster Chicago mob type riff underplaying underneath it, like from the yeah. like the thirties when, when he when he tilts his tilts his hat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's nice little kisses from Dudley Simpson throughout the yeah. throughout the score that helps sell it. But when he's trying to sell things for a comedic event, like when Andred's saying, like, one of us is must be crazy, it's either him or it's and he tails out and it trails off to womp womp womp. Yeah. You know, yeah. the it's this episode, the story of Doctor Who cannot decide if it wants to be a pure send-up, if they want to have the serious drama of Gallifrey being invaded, do they want to have a meta-critique of the whole season 15, or Britain is uh, hyperinflation, things are getting run down there, just like in Gallifrey, things are getting run down. You know, what? what is the message? What themes are you trying to weave together? And instead, it just seems, like I said earlier, Anthony Reed and Graham Williams is, oh, we got six episodes we got to fill. Let's crank stuff out. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, if only there'd been industrial action for this one as well, you know, and then we would have had a lost classic that people would be able to reanimate and something, and it's got Sontarans in it, hooray! Um, But but sadly, no, we had to have the full Monty on this one. So, yeah, I mean, this was... This was a potential end for Doctor Who in my in my book mm-hmm. when I was twelve years old. It was like shit. I do, I, do I really want to watch this anymore? Right. Because um, the Sontaran saved it for me. I was okay. Well, if they're going to do something cool like bring back favorite monsters, mm-hmm. then okay, I'm going to give it a bit more time. But it was it was it was a tough sell mm-hmm. by the end of this one. For me, it's it's all the excesses of Tom. He is the senior person now on this program, and. He really does care about Doctor Who, but he also cares about being Tom Baker and being silly Tom Baker. Uh, I think it uh, the excesses, his uh, the the mandate from BBC to make this more comedic. uh, I think he's taking it to heart, maybe a little bit too much. Right when he's held in check by senior actors like John Arnett, he gets a good performance. I think he can uh, when he's with Louise Jemison, they have decent performances together but when he's with a, a a younger actor like chris tranchell who who's been in doctor who before right, but right he 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 seems to have more of a mischievous influence i think it, it comes across when he's with rodan hillary hillary ryan where all that goofy technobabble techno babble overdrive is kick kicking in yeah and uh i guess it 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 further emphasizes uh, tom baker knows how to whistle one song and that's colonel bogey's march because he does it again <laughs> <laughs> when he's walking through the tardis corridors so uh, tom uh, baker i don't i don't know what to i don't know what to make of it um i think the final takeaway for me is leela as a character deserved better than most of what she got for season 15 and she definitely deserved a better send-off than what she got holding android's hand at the end of uh the story as the doctor grins goofily into the camera pulling a new canine out of a box yeah and yeah exactly um and i i mean just i mean i haven't listened to many of them because i mean there's only a certain number of hours in in a day for me to do anything Mm -hmm. As far as I understand it, the Leela, the the big finish of working with Leela on Gallifrey, is a great success um, mm-hmm. and well worth listening to. Have you have you some way to expand the amount of hours that you have in your day to uh, consume media? Then um, mm-hmm. I'm told that those Gallifrey uh, uh, plays mm-hmm. that the finish put out featuring Leela are very good and actually kind of address the um, address the Leela Android problem quite well. Does uh, Rodan make an appearance? I believe Rodan does make an appearance. Well, then it's Um, worth checking out. (laughs) Lots of interesting people make appearances. When I'm old and have nothing to do with my time, (laughs) I will be listening to those. But uh, but, uh, right now, yeah, finding time just to do these podcasts is tricky. (laughs) I think I'll leave it with uh, Barusa's observation of the doctor after he fires the DMAT gun for the final time to kill Store or dematerialize Store. Barusa smiles smiles and says... He remembers nothing of it. And I think I'd like to return to where I remember nothing of the Invasion of Time. Well, there you go. I mean, if you haven't seen the Invasion of Time um, fan, you should probably watch it at least once. But, you know, you're probably never going to watch it again. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, the DVD is only for completionists. Yeah, it's, it's, it's up there with Time Lash. Um, <laughs> well, cool. So that concludes our Leela retrospective. Yep. Oh, we aren't going to do uh, Dimensions in Time? Oh, are we? <laughs> 
Maybe. Oh, Maybe yeah. one day. I, 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 I've literally not watched uh, Dimensions in Time since I kind of didn't watch it when it was first on. So um, we can certainly do that. Is it, is, it, is it on YouTube or something? Can I actually watch it? Yeah, I'm it? sure it is. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it is. I found all the Blake Sevens on YouTube too. There. Yeah, so did I, actually. Um, yeah, good. Uh, I suppose we could do. I mean, it's, hmm. I don't know. Well, Maybe. future programming. We we are at a end of our planned scheduling here for the Leela retrospective. Yeah, and we uh, said last year that we were going to look at some of the Moffat Christmas specials. So that's another thing coming up. We are entering in December here. We certainly are, and we do have a Capaldi's final episode to we do. look forward to. So that's we kind do, of our upcoming do. programming. So if we can squeeze in dimensions in time, we might do that, or we might just uh, uh, punt on it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I, we're not going to tell you what the next podcast will be about because we're not <laughs> entirely sure, um, but it will be worth listening to. I can tell you that. Right. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for listening to episode 61 of the Metabilis 2 podcast. I have been talking, as always, to my comrade in arms, Ben. And I have been responding in kind to my good friend, David. Ah, Have a good evening. Have a good evening. Good night. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, as a number two, at gmail.com or on Twitter at metabilis2. And again, that's a number two. Hope to hear from you. Bye. And then I can cue in that womp, 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 womp music. It's great music. It's yeah, great, it's great awesome. music. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's actually the best thing in the whole thing. <laughs> and then we can talk about um, parts two. So maybe like you know, yeah, we'll we'll just we'll just pretend like wow, it's the Vardens. Right. Wow, they're great. <laughs> uh, and then no, it's the Sontarans.